Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to Matthew 19. Matthew 19, as you're finding your place there in God's Word, I want to welcome Reach Church DeSoto. Give Reach Church of DeSoto a big welcome this morning. Reach Church, we're glad you're joining us and also the venue service meeting with us right down the down the hall, grateful to have them as well. We're going to pick up in verse 13 of Matthew 19 as you're finding your place there. Uh, I do want to remind you tonight we do have a business meeting right in the middle of a football game. Have you all heard there's a football game going on today? Um, but we're going to have a business meeting anyway. We're going to talk about what God has done, what God is doing, and what we hope and pray that God will do. And so if you're able to come, I would encourage you to be here with us. I also want to let you know uh, that I hope that you'll be with us next weekend. I am going to address the, the election on the basis of God's word. More than that, we want to talk about the times in which we are living in. God's word speaks to these things. Uh, we should not be surprised. Isn't that what the word of God says? Don't be surprised at the fiery deal among you as if some strange thing were happening to you. And so God tells us about these things. God is sovereign over history. It is, in fact, his story. And we're going to look not only at uh, where we're at, but we're going to talk about what we should be doing. What is our responsibility today? What does God tell us to do? And so uh, I hope and pray you'll plan to be here uh, next weekend. Well, as we conclude this series... We conclude with a passage that deals with the most critical issue of life. And that's this. How do I inherit eternal life? And how do I know with absolute certainty that I will be with Christ forever in heaven? If you've read ahead, you know that in this passage, Jesus has a conversation with an individual who looks like the epitome of success. There should be no more confident person in all the world. In the world's eyes, this man has it all. He is young, he is educated, he is powerful, and he is wealthy. But he lacks one critical thing. He lacks certainty. He has no confidence, no assurance when it comes to the biggest issue of life. He may have certainty on a lot of things, but on the most critical issue of life he is insecure and so what Jesus will do in this passage is he will tell all of us with simplicity and an abundance of clarity how do we know that we know Christ and how do we have certainty that we will be with him forever in heaven with that in mind let's pray together then we'll look at this text father we thank you for your word that speaks to us on the bigger issues of life. God, we are so grateful we have a word from you, a divinely inspired word from the creator and the one who is sovereign over all the universe. And when it comes to salvation, the biggest issue of life, you've not left us to our own devices to try to figure this out on our own. You make it abundantly clear and so, God, I pray this morning you would bless your word. God, draw all of us to yourself. Speak to us. And if there is anyone here this morning, whether they be at home watching online 
or in this room or in some other venue that does not know you, that does not have certainty when it comes to the biggest issue of life, God, speak into their hearts and reveal the simple truths of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we deal with this passage on the rich young ruler, I want to bring in verses 13 through 15 because uh, there's two encounters here, and in the Gospels, they're always grouped together. So it doesn't matter if you're in Mark 10 or Luke 18 or here in Matthew 19. These two encounters are always grouped together, and with one group, Jesus will say, come on. These are the kinds of people I'm looking for, and to another individual, he will essentially say, get out of here. And the question is, what makes the difference because that's the critical point Jesus is trying to make. So look with me at verse 13. It says, Then some children were brought to him so he might lay his hands on them and pray, and the disciples rebuked them. So you've got a group of individuals here, probably the lower caste of society, and they're coming to Jesus. It's, it's really a beautiful picture because all they want is just to be with Jesus. They've heard about this man. They've heard about the miracles he's performing. They, they've heard that he teaches as one having authority. And they just want to be with Jesus. And even more than that, they want Jesus to bless their children. What a beautiful picture. And yet, what is the response of the disciples? It says the disciples didn't just send them away. The disciples rebuked them. Why in the world would the disciples do this? Because in their minds, this is the Messiah. And these children, children in that culture are seen. They're not heard. They bring nothing to the table. They're not going to invest in his ministry. They can't carry on an intelligent conversation with the, with the Messiah. They're a waste of his time. Get them out of here. These are the least likely candidates for kingdom entrance. And yet, how does Jesus respond in verse 14? But Jesus said, let the children alone. Do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. You can almost sense the anger in Jesus' voice. In fact, Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus is indignant. He tells the disciples, these children, they may be insignificant to you, but they're not insignificant to me. And they're not insignificant to God. And he takes it a step further. Not only are these children not insignificant, he says, these are the kinds of people that I'm looking for. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. That if you want to enter into my kingdom, you've got to become childlike. You see, a child, an infant, has no preconceived notions about their brilliance or their worthiness. They have no accrued spiritual bank account of all their good deeds and all their good works. They're simply humble, dependent individuals who know that they need someone else to survive. And folks, that is us. That's who we're to be. That the kingdom of heaven belongs to people who realize that they are not that great, that they are spiritually bankrupt, and they're dependent. They know that apart from Jesus Christ, they will not survive. So they trust in Christ alone. So they're completely dependent and completely humble. The point of Jesus is so clear. My people are childlike. They're humble. They know that they're not that great. See, Christianity, first and foremost, is a great awareness of what you are not. That you are not that smart. (laughs) And you're not that good, regardless of what mama told you. You are a sinner at your core. You are humble 
and you are dependent. You know that your only hope is Christ. And this is great news, amen. Because what Jesus is saying here is anyone can come to me so long as they're willing to admit that they're a sinner and trust in me as their only hope. You see, the, the church is not a collection of the, the, the world's smartest, brightest, and most beautiful people. That, that's what Paul said to the Corinthians. You remember, he says, consider your calling, brethren, that not many of you are wise, mighty, and noble. He says, look around the room. You didn't get here because you were smarter than everybody else. Aren't you grateful this morning that you don't have to score a 30 on the ACT to get into heaven? Amen. My 21, I still get there. You don't have to be a college grad. You don't have to be a high school grad. You don't even have to know how to read. You don't have to to run a mile in under nine minutes. You don't have to win a beauty contest. You only have to admit that you're a sinner and that Jesus Christ is your only hope of salvation. And Jesus says, come on. Those are the kinds of people I'm looking for. In verse 15, after laying his hands on them, he departed from there. Jesus, I love this picture. Jesus picks up these children. Picks them up. He's blessing these children. I picture Jesus praying over these children. And, and I also picture Peter saying, Jesus, I don't know about these. I love children. I wanted them to come, but these guys over here, they don't like children. I don't know. Well, what are we going to do with them, Jesus? But the disciples, you know, they're just like us. They think there's no way to come to Jesus if you don't bring something to the table. That somehow we got to earn it. we got to prove that we're good enough to come to him. Well, then there's another fellow that comes, and the disciples, they had a problem with these children coming, but they're going to have no problem with this individual coming to Jesus. This guy's the most likely candidate for kingdom entrance. He's the exact opposite of the child. He's high society. He's the guy that everyone wants to be. Women love him. Men want to be him. He is, any of y'all remember George Thorogood in the Destroyers, amen? He is, what, what's that song? Bad to the Bone. Pa- Pastor Bill, I bet he sang that song. Bad, yeah, amen. Bad to the Bone. Here's this guy, he is young, he is rich, he is powerful, and even more than this, he's religious. He's morally good. If you're recruiting for the kingdom of heaven, this is your number one candidate. You're thinking he's smart, he's wealthy, he's powerful. Jesus, we got to get this guy on the team. And how will Jesus respond? And the disciples, they're pretty impressed. But Jesus, not so much. Look at verse 16. And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do to obtain eternal life? This guy has everything, but he lacks one thing. He lacks certainty on the greatest issue of life because he's basing his salvation on his good works. Listen to me this morning. If you base your salvation on your good works, if you're basing your salvation on your unrighteousness, you will never have certainty. You will never have assurance. You will always find yourself in this prison of uncertainty where you're trying to do more good than bad. You ever been there? You're trying to do more good than bad. Every day I'm trying to do a little more good than bad in hopes that sometime sometime I'm going to earn favor. But you always find your place in a, a place of uncertainty because you can never do more good than bad. Why? Because you're a sinner. 
This, is, this, this was the condition of Martin Luther prior to coming to faith in Christ. He was trying to earn his salvation on the basis of good works. And literally, he was going insane. It, it was said that whenever Martin Luther would go to confession, the priest would run. Because they know they were going to be there for like three hours. Martin Luther was going to be confessing everything. Trying to somehow earn favor with God. He was going nuts, literally. And some of you are there this morning. You're trying to earn your way to God. You're trying to do more good than bad. And you never have... And you know the real problem with these people? They look good. They look religious. On the outside, they look like they got it all together. But on the inside, guess what? They're all in knots. Because they don't have certainty. And so here's a rich young ruler... And he's going to go where? He's going to go to a Jewish carpenter. Why in the world would a rich young ruler go to a Jewish carpenter? Because Jesus has what he doesn't. You ever have this happen to you? That maybe uh, somebody that, that you work for, maybe somebody that's above you, maybe somebody who in the world's eyes is a lot more successful than you, they got a bigger home, all the nicer cars, and they come to you because they got questions. Why do they come to you? Because you have what money can't buy. You have certainty. You have hope. You have joy regardless of your circumstances. And when it comes down to it, everybody's looking for that. But they can't find it in themselves. And so this rich young ruler, he's going to turn to Jesus. And Jesus is going to confront him with two truths. First of all, he will confront him with the holiness of God. Verse 17, he said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good. Jesus quotes from Psalm 53, there's no one who does good, not even one. See, good is a relative term. Good has to be determined by a standard. If I go to visit somebody in the hospital, more more often than not, if a person has had, let's just say they've had major surgery, and you go to visit them in the hospital, and you go in the room, and you ask them, how are you doing? You know what? More often than not, do you know how they'll respond? What will they say? I'm good. Well, if the standard of goodness is that you're still breathing, I guess you're good. But you get what I mean. Goodness has to be determined by a standard. And when it comes to salvation, God determines the standard of goodness. And God's standard of goodness, the goodness that is required for salvation is that you must be perfect. In order to get into heaven, you got to be as good as God. So this guy comes, what good thing I must do? And Jesus said, you're asking me what good, good thing to do. You can't do anything perfectly good. You may be able to do a little good in comparison to a bunch of other sinners. But when it comes to the perfect goodness that God requires for salvation, you are woefully inept. You are bankrupt. You got nothing to bring to the table. So Jesus confronts him with the goodness of God, that God is the only one who's perfectly good. And then second, Christ confronts him with the law of God. Look at the latter portion of verse 17. But if you wish to enter into to life, keep the commandments. And then he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbors yourself. So Jesus lists off the latter half of the commandments. The first four deal with our relationship with God. The latter six deal with our relationship to our fellow man. 
Why does Jesus quote the latter six? I believe he does so because our latter six, the, the, the ones that deal with our relationship to our fellow man, are more objective. It's hard to determine if you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, but loving your neighbor, well, we can, we can pretty much figure that out pretty quick. So he goes to these latter six, and he quotes them before this man. What's the man's response? Verse 20, the young man said to him, all these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? He doesn't even bat an eye. And it's laughable. It's ridiculous. He's not fooling anybody. But here is a man who is blind. He's not humbled by the goodness and the holiness of God. He's not humbled by the law of God. As intelligent as this man is, he cannot see the depth of his own sin and he cannot see the glory of God. And so he asked, what am I still lacking? Do do you see, though, what Jesus is doing here? Jesus is attempting to get him to see that he is a sinner. That's why a lot of times we share the gospel. The place to start is with the Ten Commandments. they got to first understand they're a sinner. And the law of God is intended to show us our sin. It's like a mirror. You ever have a child that that you tell them they come in from being outside, and you tell them, "You, you need to go take a bath now. And they look at you and say, no, I'm good. I'm clean. And you say, no, you're not. And you have to get a mirror and say, look at yourself, child. You are dirty. That's what the law of God does. It's God holding up a mirror in front of you. You, you, you think you're good? Well, let's, let's look. Let's compare you to God's holy and righteous standard. And you're woefully inept. But this, this guy can't see it. And he says, what am I still lacking? Jesus says, what what are you still lacking? Well, I'll tell you what you're lacking. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Two commands he gives him, two commands that are essential for salvation. Number one, sell everything you have. Now, what does this mean? The only place where Jesus tells somebody to sell everything. Well, riches, riches in that day was synonymous with righteousness, Your wealth in that day represented that you had found favor with God and that God was pleased with you. So people in this lay loved to show off how wealthy they were because it was an indicator that they had found favor with God and God was pleased with them. So Jesus is calling this man not just to sell everything or to lay down his wealth. He's calling him to lay aside his pride and his esteem before men, all the things that make him look good. So in in the midst of a culture that looked at this guy and says, he is good, what Jesus is calling him to do is to lay it all down and say, no, I'm not good. To humble himself and say, I am a sinner. That all these things that make me look religious and righteous, they are rubbish in comparison to God's holiness. And secondly, he says, follow me. See, the purpose of the law is not just to show us our sin. It's to show us that we need a Savior, that we need Christ. We need somebody. Jesus says, if you knew the law, you would know that you needed me. And so he says, sell everything and follow me. Jesus is inviting this man to receive the one thing that he needs the most, which is the righteousness of Christ. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's asking, well, how do I obtain eternal life? And Jesus says, the first step to obtaining eternal life is to admit you can't obtain it. You can't earn it. You have to lay aside all your efforts to make yourself right with God. You have to lay aside all your self-righteousness and all your pride. And you've got to place all of your faith in Christ. 
to receive his righteousness. See, the dilemma of this man is the dilemma of all of us. That God is holy. And we are not. God is righteous. And we are not. I grow so weary today with the people who are always asking the question, how can a loving God send anyone to hell? That's the question that you hear so often. How, how can a loving God send anyone? Do you know the Bible spends very little time dealing with that issue? But do you know what the Bible spends an inordinate amount of time on? This question. How can a holy and righteous God let a, any of us as wretched sinners into his kingdom? That's the real issue. The issue, the real issue is how can any of us as sinful, wretched individuals ever enter into the presence of a holy God? See, if God requires a perfect righteousness in order to, to survive his perfect judgment, Houston, we got a problem. We're in big trouble. And we're either trusting in our own righteousness, which is an illusion of righteousness. It's a false righteousness. It's fool's gold. Or you're trusting in the righteousness of another. And the only place where that righteousness can be found is the person, Christ, who fulfilled all righteousness. That's why Jesus says to him, follow me. Well, look at the response of this man in verse 22. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. This man's grieving. He, he's not defiant. He's not offended. He's not confused. He gets it. I think he understands clearly what Christ is calling him to do. And, and then he grieves. Why? Because he doesn't want to humble himself. He understands the gospel. But the, the hurdle that lies in front of him is his own pride. I don't want to give up my reputation. This man, he's built a great reputation. For me to sell everything and admit I'm a sinner... I'd look like an idiot. I'm not going to do that. Are you kidding me? In other words, I want my pride and I also want salvation. I want my righteousness and I also want salvation. I want my glory and I also want salvation. And what did you say? If anyone comes after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. No exceptions. You've got to humble yourself, lay it all down, and say that I am nothing and Christ is everything. The number one reason that keeps people from trusting Christ is pride. Number one reason that keeps people from trusting Christ is pride. They either think that they're smarter than God, they got it all figured out, they've read a book, got a degree, and somehow now, Thousands of centuries of Christian history. And they've now figured it out. Listen, that's the predominant worldview in which we live. That we're smarter than God. We've outsmarted ourselves and we've outsmarted God. We're educated beyond our own, own obedience. I'm here to tell you all the knowledge of the world is but a thimble full of knowledge in comparison to the knowledge of God. You are not that smart. Or you're either a person who thinks you're smarter than God or you think that somehow you're going to earn your way to God on the basis of your own goodness. 
that you have done a lot of good things and that you, you, you think that somehow you're going to stand before God one day and he's going to say, oh boy, never seen anybody like you. You are good. And I'm here to tell you this morning, you stand before God one day, you're going to realize real quick you're a sinner. The core of the issue is always pride. It is for this man. And you can't cling to your pride in your own glory and still go to heaven. It doesn't work that way. You have to lay aside your glory. You have to humble yourself. Become a fool for Christ in the eyes of the world. Well, look at verse 23. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter in the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter in the kingdom of God. He says it's really hard for a person who has built their life on their own self-righteousness to hear that in comparison to Christ, it amounts to nothing. It's fool's gold. It's confederate money. It gets you nowhere. That you have no advantage over the worst of sinners. That the person who's gone to church their whole life and the guy in prison doing life without parole are in the same spiritual condition apart from faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Do you understand that this morning? It's hard for a self-righteous person to lay it down and admit they're a sinner. But Jesus goes a step further. Not just difficult, it's impossible. Trying to get to heaven on the basis of your own good works is impossible. It's like trying to get a camel through the eye of a needle. See, heaven is the needle's eye. And the only way you get in is through the single thread of faith in Jesus Christ. There's no other way. The response of the disciples, look at what they say. When the disciples heard this, they were astonished and said, Then who can be saved? I think they identify with this guy a little bit. they, they may have admitted we're not as good as this guy, but that's the goal. This is what we're trying to, to be. And so in their mind, they're beginning to think, if this guy doesn't get in, oh, we're in big trouble. I mean, what, what if I told you this morning, in order to go to heaven, you got to be fast? Your question would be what? Well, how fast do I got to be? What if I told you Usain Bolt, fastest man in the world, he doesn't make it in? What would your response be? And we're all in big, big trouble. That's the way these disciples were thinking. If this guy doesn't make it in, then we're doomed. And that's exactly the point that Jesus is trying to make, that it's impossible to get to heaven on the basis of your own good works. You can't do it. But then Jesus quickly adds in verse 26, and looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. What is impossible with men, it's no problem with God, which essentially means that if any of us are going to get to heaven, then God is going to have to do it by a sovereign grace. Amen? That if any of us are getting to heaven, it's going gonna, it's gonna to have to be a work of God. That God's going to have to convict us. God's going to have to convert us. God's going to have to change us from the inside out. God's going to have to carry us on. God's going to have to seal us. God's going to have to raise us up one day to be seated with Christ in the heavenly places. But all praise be to God because he's our only hope. Amen. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. There's not one individual who's going to get to heaven one day and say, 
boy, look at how good I did this deal. Man, I worked this thing out great. I forget who said it, but they said when, that, when I get to heaven, they said, number one, I'm going to be amazed at who's not there that I thought would be there. And I'll also be amazed at who is there that I didn't think would be there. But most importantly, I'll be amazed that I'm there. If any of us are getting to heaven, it's going to have to be because God works it in us. The point is so clear. Who can be saved in their own power? No one. Who can God save in his power? Anyone. So long as you're willing to admit that you're a sinner and trust in Christ as your only hope of salvation. You know, really, this is the argument of Paul in Philippians chapter 3. Paul was speaking to the Philippians, said, you know, if, if anybody could have get in, got in on the basis of good works and human effort and the law, I would have been a shoe-in. You remember what he said? He says, if anyone has the ability to put confidence in the flesh, I got far more. Circumcised on the eighth day in the nation of Israel, a tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as the law of Pharisee, as the zeal, a persecutor of the church, as the righteousness that can be found in the law, I was blameless. I checked every box. But then you remember what he says, but whatever things were gained to me, I count, now count as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, which is a false righteousness, but the righteousness from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, that I may somehow attain to the resurrection from the dead. Do you know what Paul says? He says, Philippians, I tried as hard as I could and I was spinning my wheels and it was an illusion of righteousness that wasn't real and then I met Jesus. And I realized I was a sinner. And I realized Christ was my only hope. And now I have found in him what I could never find in the law. And all those things that I used to do to try to earn favor, they're now rubbish to me. In comparison to knowing Christ through faith. If you're here today and you're trusting in your own righteousness, in your own goodness, if in your pride do you think that somehow God is going to be impressed when you stand before him one day, my prayer is that you would see the glory of God today and that God would humble you and you would trust in Christ and him alone. You would humble yourself. This is God's economy that the way up is down. The way to greatness is is to humble yourself. The way to salvation is to admit that you are bankrupt. And humbling yourself, listen, it's not easy to humble yourself, is it? We are prideful people. You know, there was another rich young ruler in the Old Testament. You know what his name was? Naaman. The leper. You remember Naaman in the Old Testament? And Naaman was rich. He was young, and he was powerful. He had one problem. What did he have? He had a terminal illness. 
called leprosy. But he heard about a God. He heard about a God who saves and who heals in Israel. So he goes over to Israel and he hunts down a guy named Elisha. This is a non-Jew. This is a guy who just hears about God. And he goes over to Elisha. And he says, I've heard there's healing over here. What do I got to do? And Elijah says, you got to go down and you got to be baptized. Only guy in the Old Testament to get baptized. You got to go down to that Jordan River and you got to dip seven times. And what was Naaman's response? That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You kidding me? Make myself a fool. We got better rivers back in my home country. Why'd I got to go over to this river? And guess what he'd have to do in order to dip in that river? Guess what he'd have to do? He'd have to take off his clothes. And if he takes off his clothes, what gets exposed? His sickness. That he is nasty. He may think he's powerful, but he is dirty. What does his servant say? What do you got to lose? You're going to die. He goes down and he humbles himself. You don't think that was a humbling moment for Naaman? Powerful man to expose himself. But he wades out into those waters and he dips one time nothing, two times nothing. He's got to obey to the fullest. But he dips that seventh time and he comes out with baby skin. Do you know what we call that? We call that being born again. But he had to humble himself. He couldn't cling to his own glory and pride and still no salvation. And you got to lay it all down. For this man, it was riches. I don't know what it is for you, but you got to lay it down. Whatever you're clinging to for glory and hope and joy, you got to be willing to lay it down. You remember Mary and Simon the leper's house? They're having a meal. Lazarus is there. Final week of Jesus. And Mary is so overwhelmed with this man that's in the room. Everybody in the room owes their life to him. And she understands and she goes back into her room and she brings out an alabaster jar of perfume. The most expensive thing she owned. Not only was it expensive and valuable, it was an emblem of who she was. Perfume was a sign to everybody else that you were a woman of status. And she brings it out. Does she just pour a little bit out? She breaks the jar. Because she knows that all the things that I count dear are rubbish in comparison to knowing this man. And she lays it down. What are you clinging to for hope today? What's holding you back from trusting in Christ? What's holding you back from laying it all down? I can tell you this this morning. What you will gain in Christ is so great, it'll make all things look like rubbish in comparison to him. And certainty. Do you have certainty? You can't buy certainty. Money can't buy certainty. Position, power can't buy certainty. What are you trusting in this morning? 
you know, this week, I don't know if you saw Rush Limbaugh. He's got a ter- terminal cancer. He kind of came out and told everybody, I'm, I'm going to die. I know it. And he, he said, we all know we're going to die, but now I know kind of I'm on a time frame. Can I just let you in on some knowledge this morning? We're all on a time frame. What are you trusting in when you're lying on that hospital bed and that machine is going beep, beep, beep? What are you trusting in? Do you have certainty? There's only one place to find it. And it is a man who is God and left the glory of heaven, lived a perfect and sinless life, And he died on the cross for your sins. And he's God and he's Savior. How do we know it? Because he was raised from the dead. He passed through death and he came out victorious because death couldn't hold him. You know where he's at today? He's ascended unto the Father. He's at the right hand of the Father. You know what he's doing today? He's calling out a people. We're going to talk about it next week. The church is the ecclesia, ek out of, kaleo, to call out. He's calling out a people unto himself. He's saying, trust in me, and you'll be with me forever. Is he calling out to you this morning? Is he speaking into your heart? You're listening at home, online, DeSoto, the venue, wherever you are, if he's speaking into your heart, don't go away grieving like this guy. Trust him. Know his salvation. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for your word that speaks so simply and plainly. I love this, God. You've made the gospel so simple. But God, for some reason in our sinfulness, we think it's too good to be true. That today, apart from no act of our own, except just believing in Jesus, turning from our sins and trusting in Christ, we can have salvation. It is true. There's a room of people, full of people here today that would testify, it is true. God, I don't know what's keeping somebody from trusting you, but today I pray that your love and your grace would so overwhelm them. Your word says it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. God, I pray today that your love, your overwhelming love that was demonstrated on the cross would overwhelm any fear, any anxiety, or any level of pride. It would humble them today, and they would run to you like a little child and know your grace. We love you, Father. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.